Welcome to worship on this beautiful, uh, still summer Sunday morning. Um, we want to uh, uh, encourage you to uh, remain with us after the service today for our coffee hour. Um, and uh, we uh, are eager to meet anyone who is visiting with us for the first time today. We welcome you and hope that if there's anything that we can do to make you more comfortable, um, you will share that with us. As we begin this morning, um, join me, please, in the preparatory prayer. Almighty God, you pour out the spirit of grace and supplication on all who desire it. Deliver us from cold hearts and wandering thoughts, that with steady minds and burning zeal we may worship you in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our help is in the name of the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. Grace to you and peace from God, our creator, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, peace be with you. My peace I give to you. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. The peace of Christ be with you. Let's stand and share a sign of peace with each other. We are called to worship with the words of Psalm 116. God is gracious and righteous, our protector and savior. God has dealt bountifully with us, and our souls can return to rest. God has delivered our souls from death, our eyes from tears, and our feet from stumbling. We walk before God in the land of the living. In gratitude and with joy, let us worship God. Come, let us worship the Lord. If we were to take inventory of all the words we spoke in a day, how many of them would be truthful, edifying, encouraging, or constructive? And how many the opposite. You see, this is why we need to confess our sin, because we speak it as well as think and act on it. Let us pray. Our words are full of deadly poison. We curse one another, ignoring the likeness of God in our neighbors. We use our words to bless you, 
yet curse one another. Forgive our hidden faults and cleanse us of our public sins. Let our words and our thoughts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This is a sure and trustworthy saying. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Therefore, in Christ, we stand forgiven. Thanks be to God. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so, let us live. As we come to the word of God, let us pray. Lift up your hearts. Let us lift them to the Lord our God. O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our first reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. The prophet exudes confidence in God's protection. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen to those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson comes to us from the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 8, verse 27 through 38. In this text, Jesus confronts his disciples with issues of profession of faith. Hear now the word of God. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And one of the prophets, I'm sorry, and they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What you are obviously thinking as you read this passage, that this is very early in the book of Mark. We have not yet gone to the Passion Week. Jesus has not yet made it to Jerusalem. And yet he makes a very, very profound statement that you have heard sermon upon sermon over the years. He says to his disciples that if you want to be my followers, you must deny yourself and take up a cross and follow me. Now, what we need to remember is, or take into mind anyway, is that no one knows yet what's going to happen in Jerusalem. None of these disciples are aware that Jesus is even going to have a bad time in Jerusalem. Jesus is talking to them about it. He's trying to explain what's going to happen. But the disciples, the crowd, have no sense whatsoever that at some point down the road, terrible things are going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. And so when he turns and addresses the crowd, how are they going to understand this whole sense of carrying a cross? Now, I never quite understood the problem with the cross for a lot of people, nor did I ever understand until recent years why the cross can be a stumbling block for some people. Until my, my ex-mother-in-law made a comment to me one time. We were in a Presbyterian church where my grandson was being baptized, and on the way out, she who is married to a Jew said to me, I just don't understand why you Christians choose a symbol of torture as something to worship. And it was like a smack in the face. I'd never quite thought of it that way before. And I suspect you hadn't either. This idea that somehow bearing a cross is not only a stumbling block for people today, but would have never come into the mind of these original hearers of Jesus. 
So what does that mean about this text? What does it mean about these words? What is the significance of that simple phrase, take up their cross and follow me? Perhaps those words were added after the fact. Perhaps after the Passion, when these books were written, the authors of these Gospels put in these words as a way of signifying what Jesus was trying to get at with the crowd and put words into Jesus' mouth that would communicate to the Christians post-crucifixion and resurrection and ascension so that they would understand what Jesus was calling them to. But either way, these words now address us. And I'm curious as to how many different interpretations there might be of this phrase, taking up your cross and following me. Many people talk about some kind of physical or mental affliction as their cross. Sometimes their cross is their kids or their parents, or their plot in life. Sometimes it's their arthritis, or their lumbago, or who knows what else. Sometimes the cross is a struggle within a family system or a job situation. What is Jesus getting at when he says to his disciples, If you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. What does it mean to do that? Does that mean simply to accept your lot in life? And why is that any different than any other path to take? Why would that be so outstanding a statement? What is Jesus truly after when he says to these disciples, you must deny yourselves take up a cross, your cross, and follow me. I love that sound, by the way. I really do love that sound. Perhaps what we need to understand in this passage is the confrontation that happens earlier. Jesus is explaining to the people what's going to happen, or to the disciples, I should say, They have, Peter has declared that you are the Messiah, and he begins to explain to him what's going to happen, and does so quite openly to the disciples, and then Peter takes him aside and says, you know, really, talking about suffering does not sell well. You know, we Jews, we've done enough suffering, and really, if you want to to get people pumped, about this gospel you're trying to preach, you know, you really don't want to talk about pain and suffering. Okay? I mean, Peter obviously is a good businessman, and he has some PR training. And yet Jesus turns to him and says what? Get behind me, Satan. One of the few references to Satan in the New Testament. Now, does that mean that Peter is somehow the incarnation of Satan? Of course not. But what he is saying is that Satan is the father of lies in the prophets. The father of lies that says that somehow or other this thing called the gospel is all about good times, 
happy faces, good feelings, healings, a good life. And so when Jesus turns to the crowd and says, I'm going to explain to you in terms that you will understand, that if you follow me, it's not all roses. It's not going to be easy. It is not going to guarantee you an easy, carefree, good life. Not going to happen. I don't know how many times I have talked to young Christians through the years, whether they be, I don't care what chronological age they are, but soon after their conversion or their confirmation will say to me, I guess I just never realized that as a Christian I would have to struggle. Being a Christian does not erase the possibilities or the realities of struggle, pain, and hard times. And what Jesus is saying in these words is that as life deals us a bad hand, it is better to play the hand than to throw in the deck. It is better to live through the pain or the suffering or the difficulty knowing what the prophet says to us in the text that we read this morning, that when God is on our side, we are protected. We are accompanied. We are strengthened. We can be encouraged. That is even more so now that we know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and that when Jesus lives in us and dwells in us in the person and power of God's Spirit, indeed God walks with us through whatever circumstances, for good or for bad, painful or joyful, God is always with us. We cannot escape that. So when Jesus says that we must lose our lives in order to gain eternal life, What does that mean? What significance does that have? Does that mean that somehow or other we have to commit psychological or spiritual suicide in order to somehow get something from God that allows us to live the spiritual life? If any of you have read John Calvin, any section of his theology about the Christian life you would know that the most prominent phrase, the most numerous word used in Calvin's writings is self-denial. He defined the entire Christian life in those words. Self-denial. Giving up control, giving up the need to possess all of our life, allowing Christ to be Messiah, Lord of our lives. I have to be honest with you. 
these words of Jesus are not so much a slap in the face, somehow trying to get our attention to make us more religious. These words are extremely erotic words. These words are calling you into a relationship with Jesus Christ that is as deep, as intimate, as profound, as secure as your relationship to your spouse or your lover. You see, these words become then for Jesus in his last words when he says, those who are ashamed of me and my words in this what a generation? How, what adjective does he use? Adulterous. How are we adulterous? We have another lover. We love something or someone else besides this God who is constantly present to us. The challenge of these words is not about somehow carrying a burden on our shoulders or the size of the cross that we bear or the weight of the circumstances we live through. It is all about, will you allow me to love you? And will you allow me to be the person who, in fact, carries you when the times get bad so that there's only one set of footprints in the sand? Will you allow me to be so close, so intimately involved in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your words, in your relationships, in your involvements, that you will find in me contentment, joy, encouragement through whatever circumstances life brings. You see, what Jesus is talking about in these last words about being ashamed is that if you are in fact unable to be in love with Jesus Christ, if you are unable to share your life with the person who has died, to demonstrate his love for you. If you are ashamed of that, if somehow or other that makes you uneasy, then perhaps there isn't a good relationship from the beginning. Maybe there's not going to be a courtship. And maybe, perhaps, at the end of all of this religious attempt at living a Christian life, you still haven't gotten it yet. I don't know or hope that that is the case of any of us. But I do believe that it's important for us to simply take inventory when we hear these words of Jesus. Do we take up our cross to follow Christ? Do we allow this Christ into our lives? Not just on Sunday mornings, but 24-7, 365. 
Are we allowing this Christ to so permeate the way we see the world, the way we speak, the way we feel, the way we act, the way we commit ourselves, that when people look at us, they see what we're called Christians, little Christs. I can't ignore the fact that in seeing William and Annabelle this morning, they look so much like their parents. I mean, they, they, they don't look like me, or they don't look like Steve, or, 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 or you know, they don't look like Tom or Curly or, or even Marilyn. Um, all good-looking people, obviously, but, but they look like their mom and dad. There's a reason for that. Okay, they've got their genes. And I guess the, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are the spiritual genes of our makeup? Who are we going to look like when people see us, hear us, watch us? Who do they see, hear, encounter? Let's pray. We neither want to be ashamed of nor let you down, Lord. And so we ask for grace, strength, courage, sincere commitment that will enable us to be who you have called us to be as disciples. When people wonder about who we are, may they say, oh yes, they're little Christs. That's our, that's our goal in life. That's our desire as Christians. That's what it means for us to be holy. Enable us to love you to this level as you have loved us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Using the words of the Apostles' Creed, let us state what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son to the Holy Ghost.
in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Part of the dance is supporting each other in the dance. And that is what the offering is all about. It is giving of our tithes and gifts and offerings to God for the sake of helping all who dance this dance with the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God all creatures here Above ye heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to offer thanks and praise. God of all mercies, we give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all people. Give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service, and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Our work of worship is our prayer. We are called to intercession, as is Christ interceding for us constantly at the right hand of God the Father, according to the book of Hebrews. So our intercession makes us Christ-like. As little Christs, we pray for each other and for what's on our hearts, whether it be for joy and thanksgiving or for pain uh, and for need. So I give you opportunity at this time to share um, things on your heart, uh, whether it be for someone else, for yourself, uh, and then we will simply pray, uh, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Okay? Father in heaven, we thank you that all these things that we have brought, uh, you are already aware of, and we ask that your will and your purpose be brought forth in each instance. We thank you for the opportunity to share in, in your ministry uh, to your people and ask that uh, you would honor Christ in all that we ask and pray because he is the one who taught us to pray, boldly saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us on not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As we begin to conclude, I want to share uh, something that perhaps most of you didn't know. Uh, not only did we have hot dog days on Wednesday, Tuesday and Wednesday this week, but yesterday, from noon until about supper time, um, there was a major concert going on on our front porch, drawing some significant crowds of university students, uh, putting us into the news on the university television channel, 
giving us uh, some uh, not publicity, if you will, but at least some knowledge of the larger community. Uh, they were here to draw students' attentions to the need to register to vote and had uh, tables for kids, students to register to vote. Um, and uh, Oss was telling me last night on the phone that uh, it was a great day. There was lots of people. Folks stopped in their cars uh, to listen, et cetera. It was a, it was a great event. So uh, I'm not sure many of us knew about that. I, I realized that Kathy made the arrangements with them because they're a student organization. Uh, so uh, that's what happens when you, when you open your facility to the young people. They, they do great things. And uh, that's part of why we do what we do. Other announcements? Is there anything that did not make the bulletin? Um, the food delivery is expected normally at the normal time of 10.30 to 11 o'clock this Wednesday morning. So we do need volunteers. Um, uh, Mauricio's guys said that they would be here. Um, but uh, as, as many as po are possible, m Wednesday morning between 10.30 and 11.00. And of course, the more people we have, the faster it goes, and so we could be out of here by 11.30, 11, 11.30, depending on uh, how many folks we have to unload. I'm, I'm not under the impression it's going to be a very large order this time. Uh, several uh, m messages from the food bank in Hillside are that the state program has cut back significantly. So I don't think we're going to have a lot, but uh, there, will be, there will be a typical four-pallet kind of order and and the more we have, the easier it is for all of us. So, 10.30 to 11 on Wednesday. Martha? Thank you. And again on Saturday, on Saturday for those of you who can, between 12.30 and 4, um, the cleanup. Um, if you can come earlier than 12.30, uh, there'll, be, there'll be opportunity for you to dig in and start whatever you would like to do in terms of cleaning. Uh, but uh, the students will arrive here around 12.30. So uh, please uh, come and enjoy their company. Any other announcements? Okay. Uh, Kathy did ask me to remind you that there's a um, flour and cookie or, or refreshment coffee hour sign-ups on the bulletin board right outside the lounge for sign-up in, in the future. Okay? Not hearing any other announcements, let's turn in our hymnals to the closing hymn, number 388.
I don't know how many of you know this, but Helen Erdy loves to dance, and she's a very good dancer. Uh, when I was at Lindsay's uh, wedding, uh, she and I danced together on the floor. Uh, uh, it wasn't a real fast dance, but it wasn't a slow dance either. And I think, Helen, you'll affirm and confirm for me that when two people dance, it's kind of a, an intimate experience. There's something about that that kind of draws you together, at least for a moment, when you've got to talk to each other and look at each other and touch each other and do something together in, in harmony and rhythm, right? So, I invite you to dance, to spend the next few days and weeks and months dancing with him who is our Savior and enjoy the dance. And as you do so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit dance with you until the dance ends and then forever. And all of God's people said,